And in case you are wondering, the book of Nehemiah has a lot of relevance for us today, but it's always a foretaste or a foreshadowing. See, the Old Testament is, is always giving us a picture of really Christ's ultimate kingdom that he's bringing and, and God's ultimate work that he's doing. And so God, we see in the book of Nehemiah, is about the process of rebuilding his kingdom and restoring his people. Really, the, the first eight, eight chapters of the book of Nehemiah are all about this rebuilding and, and working up to the building being completed. And then the latter part of the book of Nehemiah is all about how God really is, has been all about restoring his people and bringing his people back back into his place. And that's relevant for us today too because really Jesus said that he would build his kingdom and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And that Jesus is all about preparing a people, working in his people as we do his kingdom work, and working in his people so that he can bring us into ultimately, finally, God's place. And so the book of Nehemiah is really pointing us forward to our hope in God's kingdom that will never fail and hope of being in God's place that he will build us into him. So with that kind of context of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes alive. And so I want as we read through chapter four, you'd be listening and looking as, as we want to be people of the word, listening, looking for clues. Hey, how does this relate to the coming kingdom? How does this relate to Christ in his kingdom? Because Jesus said all of the scriptures, the whole Old Testament, all of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, they all tell about me. So let's listen to Nehemiah four and see how does this tell us about God's kingdom and God's people working in God's kingdom? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 4. This is God's holy, inspired word. We have a longer passage again today. I'm not going to make you stand for it. Stand in your hearts, honoring God that this is his inerrant word. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn the ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he heard and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carry burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. 
and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may, be, and may be labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vivid account. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this picture of your people who, although they were oppressed and facing dire opposition from without and within, Lord, your people were able to continue work resting and trusting in you. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every person here, Lord, we face opposition We face opposition from without. We face opposition from within. We face discouragement. Lord, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us to keep our hands at the plow, Lord, to stay vigilant, to rest in trust in you. Lord, I pray that these words would come alive, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, enliven us to hear. Lord, enliven me to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, way back in 1530, there was a guy named Martin Luther, and he wrote a letter to a young guy named Jerome, I think, Weller. He was a friend of his. He had previously lived with Martin Luther in his home. He had tutored his children. They were good friends, and now he was going out on his own, and he was struggling, and he was in the midst of spiritual despair, something that Martin Luther was very familiar with. And he writes a letter to Jerome, and he says, Excellent Jerome, you ought to rejoice. He says, You ought to rejoice in this temptation of the devil, because it's a certain sign that God is propitious and merciful to you. You say that temptation is heavier than you can bear, and that you fear that it will so break and beat you down as to drive you to despair and blasphemy. I know this while of the devil. If he cannot break a person with his first attack, he tries by persevering to wear him out and weaken him until the person falls and confesses himself beaten. Now, if you were Jerome getting that letter, you might wonder about Martin Luther's sanity. But Martin Luther was familiar with the attacks of the devil, both from without and from within, discouragement and despair and despondency. And he knew that when God's people are doing God's kingdom work, there will always be an attack. And yet we should, in the midst of that, rejoice, not because of the attacks, but rejoice because it's a sure sign that we are working in God's kingdom and that our work is being opposed because it's God's work. He says it's a certain sign that God is propitious and merciful to you. I doubt the people in Nehemiah's day immediately thought, hey, God, this is a sign of God's faithfulness that we're enduring persecution and opposition. I doubt they were thinking, you know what, this is really good, you know, this is great. What they probably did was wondered, at least at first, hey, isn't this God's work? Isn't this God's kingdom? Isn't this God's wall? Aren't we doing God's will? Why in the world is God allowing these attacks? Isn't God able, isn't God able to not even have attacks come against us, right? You ever have that thought, by the way? As you're doing God's work for God's kingdom, you're doing good things, you're doing what's right, and opposition comes, and you can be tempted to think something is wrong. And in one sense, you're right, but nothing is wrong necessarily with the work or the kingdom, but something is wrong in the world that opposes God, Whenever we're doing kingdom work, 
Whenever God's people are working on his kingdom, the work will be opposed. You can be guaranteed that. Jesus said, in this world, it was a promise, you will. He's the creator. He's saying, in this world, you will have many troubles. But then he tells them, take heart, I have overcome the world. Whenever God's people are busy working, building the kingdom, they will face opposition. That's what we see from this passage. This passage has relevance. We face opposition. You and I will face, do face opposition, both externally and internally. But this passage shows us that although we should expect to be opposed, God's people can prevail and persevere. God's people can persevere in the midst of opposition. And we see here really some ways, in, in all of these verses, when, when you have God's people are opposed, we see that God's people are able to persevere. We see both the means that the devil, that the enemy uses against God's people, but also the means that God's people respond to opposition. What do we do when we're opposed? What do we do when we have opposition on the outside or opposition from within? Anybody here ever have, ever have opposition from people around you, from outside the church, who ridicule you, who mock you, who think that you're no good? Anybody have that? I hope so. It means that you're doing the Lord's work. Anybody here ever discouraged or despairing? When, and you're thinking, this is not work, this is too much work for me. Anybody ever feel that way? This passage is for us. It's instructive. And the main idea that we're going to see this passage is that God's people will prevail because God is for them. God's people prevail. God's people maybe persevere. There's another way of putting it. God's people prevail. They persevere because God is with them all along. That's the, the undercurrent, the thread that goes throughout. God allowed the opposition to, to make the people turn to him to not trust in themselves to not be self-sufficient. You can't be self-sufficient in the face of opposition. He, he allowed the opposition to build their faith in him. That's what we see. And their faith is built in him. He, he allowed the opposition to bring them together in unity. In the face of threats of division, God's people grow, draw together around his purposes. They unite in him. They knit together as one. They, it enables them to work even more confidently, even more vigilantly when they see opposition and the plans are thwarted. Now God's people are even more inspired to be vigilant and confident and face the threats. God allows this opposition to let his people know that they can trust in him and rely on him although they continually fail, face opposition from without and from within. And if you look down really in the first nine verses and all throughout, there is opposition in the passage. And the first idea that we're going to unpack from that is that when we face opposition, what, what do God's people do? When, we, when they face opposition, we see a couple responses. We see opposition, God's people pray. Opposition, God's people pray. But in the midst of that, they continue their work. You know, two of the things that our church wants to grow in, two of the goals that we have as a local church, is we want to grow and be people of God's word, and we want to grow and be people of prayer. And this, this passage couldn't be more relevant and more timely for us in that, is that when, when God's people face opposition, what do we do? How do we face opposition? We pray and we work. We pray and we set our minds to work. And there, there's three ways that we see in this passage that the enemy opposes God's people. Well, more than three ways, but at least three ways that external opposition comes. And we see the first way that external opposition comes is through ridicule, right? Look, at, look down your verse, in, in the first few verses, what Sanballat says to them. He, he ridicules them. He's angry. He's opposed. And by the way, whenever you're doing God's work, it will be opposed by the devil because the devil is dead set against the work of the Lord. And so, just like in that day, Sanballat was being motivated by evil desires, evil will motivate the people around us to oppose Christianity, to oppose the cause of Christ. That's why you see that outworking in, in politics and other places and, and people fighting against freedoms of religion because that's ultimately not about politics, it's ultimately about the enemy fighting against opposing the work of God. 
trying to shut down, trying to intimidate, trying to ridicule Christians to say that, you know, Christians, you are feeble-minded, right? You're feeble. What does Sam Ballot say? He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? You ever had anybody tell you, no, Christianity is for the feeble-minded. It's for those who are really weak. It's, it's, it's just, you know, religion is a crutch. It's, it's for people who aren't strong. And in some sense, I say amen to that because I'm not strong at all. I need more than crutches. I, I need a full body cast. I need something to enable me. Paul says, not many of you are strong. Not many of us are strong. Not many of us are impressive. And there is a truth in the attack that we're feeble, but it's not what the people around meant. It's not what Sanballat meant when he said they were feeble. What, what we mean when we say we are weak in ourselves is that although we are weak in ourselves, we are strong in God. And you know what? For the apostle Paul, he was, he was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. We're not exactly sure. Maybe it was blindness, maybe it was some other physical malady. We're not sure, but it was, it was something that attacked him he was the great apostle so much so when he was at work, he was, he was mending tents or nets and he was, he was, he was repairing things and, and people and he would, he would wipe his forehead and with the sweat of his brow and people would pick that up and they'd be healed. He had a great ministry. He was able to, to, to speak words of encouragement and truth. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. This was the great apostle and yet he had a thorn in the flesh and that weakness was meant for him to rely on God and God said, Jesus said, in your weakness, I am strong. What do we do when we're accused of being feeble? We turn to God. They are feeble Will they restore it for themselves? He's mocking them. There's, there's not only ridicule, there's mockery. What are they going to do that themselves? That's what he's saying. You can, you can imagine his attitude. What are they going to do? They're going to sacrifice and magically as they sacrifice, things are going to happen? What he didn't understand was the power of God in the midst of a life lived in worship. Is that God uses frail, cracked, empty vessels that are set apart for him to show forth his glory. But look at, look at him, and he says, will they sacrifice, will they finish up in a day? He's mocking them. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You know, what, what do they think they're gonna do? You think they're gonna transform society? You think they're gonna make the church strong? You think they're gonna make a difference in the world? You think Christianity makes a difference in the world? They're facing mockery, disdain, what, what do you think? That you have a handle on the truth? They're facing opposition. They're facing ridicule and mockery. But not only that, look down your Bibles. They face threats. They face all kinds of threats. You know, Tobiah in, in, chapter, in verse three, he's, he makes kind of a joke. What If only a fox went up on the wall, the wall would fall down. But it's, it's not joking. Those, those words, those, those threats, they, they pierce us. You know the old saying, if sticks and stones could break my bones, you know, but words will never hurt me or something along those lines, right? But words do hurt. They pierce to our hearts. James tells us that words have an effect, that that mockery, that ridicule, that threats, they can pierce to our very souls. We can see that they're threatening. Now, their threats are not just empty threats. They have meaning to them. You know, threats today against God's kingdom and standing for his kingdom, there are meaningful threats. It's not just words. It is words which pierce. It's words which hurt. It's words which cause us to fear man, to back down, to say, I don't want to look judgmental, so I'm not going to tell people the truth, or I don't want to look arrogant, so I'm not going to tell them that what they believe is wrong. And so those things pierce us, and they hinder us from being effective in building God's kingdom and sharing the gospel. But it's not just words that we're affected by, right? Now, in this country, we're not affected in one sense yet very much with physical threats. There are threats to close down businesses. There are threats to shut down churches, to, to take away protections of religion. There are all those kinds of threats, and they are real threats. 
But you know, God's people all throughout history have also faced physical threats, and that was what we see in these verses. We see the enemy is going to use whatever tactic he can to come against God's kingdom and God's kingdom work. And so he uses mockery, he uses jeering, he uses all kinds of intimidation tactics, and he uses physical threats of violence. There's a website called Voice of the Martyrs. I would encourage you to go there and let your heart be broken for the people who are on the front lines suffering physical difficulties and challenges, but let your heart be encouraged that there are people on the walls who are facing opposition and not giving up even to death. In verse 8, it says, they all plotted together. All of these people all around them. Look, look in verse, back in verse 7, it says, so Samballat, he was up in Samaria, and Tobiah, he was in the area probably south of there, and then the Arabs on the east, and then the Ammonites and the Ashdodites on the west. All of the people, what you get is this imagery that's vivid. All of the people around the kingdom of God are banding together, not just verbally, but they're getting together physically to threaten God's people. And then in verse 8 it says, they plotted to come together and fight and cause confusion. There are threats from without. There is mockery. There is intimidation, fear tactics. All of those things the people of God will face. And what do the people of God do? What do people of God do when you face threats of mockery and jeering and intimidation and physical threats of violence. Well, look in verse four. They prayed. He says, hear, O our God, for we're despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and, and give them up to be plundered to the land. They prayed, and you, you might think this is a really odd prayer, but the prayer is ultimately for God's justice to be done. For us, that's informative. We, don't, we, we, we pray imprecatory prayers, but not that um, the people around us would die, but that God would judge evil. And that's what they're praying for, is that, that God's justice would be done. And that's part of when Jesus taught us how to pray. He says, thy kingdom come, that your rule and your authority, your justice be established. We can pray that way, that God, would your kingdom be established? Lord, would your justice be done? And we can trust the fact that when we're opposed, when we're opposed by people who threaten us, we can trust that God's justice will be done. We can appeal to his justice ultimately. And that can keep us from being angry and taking vengeance into our own hands. You remember, God says, vengeance is mine. He will, he will turn back on their own heads the threats. So God's people pray. Prayer was a necessity in the midst of ridicule and mocking and danger. Their enemies were against their work. The devil rages against our work. Prayer is a necessity. We need God's justice. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. Let me ask you a question. How do you fight a principality or a power or wickedness in high places? Do you think you're gonna, you're gonna do that with your fists? You think you're gonna fight our true enemy that's not flesh and blood? And even though you might be deceived into thinking that the people who are against you on the outside or in the world, that it's all about them and the opposition or we need, a, we need political change or all these other things. No, our enemy's not physical, it's spiritual. So how do you fight a spiritual enemy? Spiritual warfare. You see, God's people, although they were fighting a physical enemy, ultimately there's this little thread throughout and God's saying, no, your real enemy, it's, it's actually the one behind them that's motivating them. Your real enemy is the ultimate enemy of justice. So if you're gonna fight principalities and, and powers, we can only do that through prayer. We see, we see a picture of that in the Old Testament. That's not a new idea. In, in Daniel, he's, he's praying. You see different prophets praying, and there's spiritual warfare. He's praying, and, 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 and the answer to that prayer is long coming because there is a spiritual battle that is raging in the heavenlies. What do we do when we face opposition? We partner together in prayer. Look at the, the words they use. It says, we 
we are despised. There's a, a corporate nature to it. But notice also, prayer is not opposed to working. Look, look in the midst of this. It says, we prayed, in verse 4 and 5, and, and, and what's the response of prayer? We prayed and then we cowered? No. We prayed and then we stopped and did nothing? We prayed and then, you know what we did? We, we waited to see what would happen? No. We prayed and we anticipated God would be at work. We prayed, we trusted, and so what does verse 6 says? So we built a wall. We prayed and worked. Prayer is not opposed to work. Prayer enables the work. It says, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And notice where that is. It's sandwiched in the middle of prayer. In verse 4 and 5, they prayed. And then they, so they built a wall. What's the natural response to opposition? We pray, and we get to work on the kingdom. We pray when we, we hear opposition from without, and we share the gospel. We, we pray, and we encourage. We pray, and we get to work. But look, it doesn't stop. It gets worse. In seven, they all come against. In eight, they plot together. And so what do they do? They're praying. They're working. And then in in verse nine, what does it say? What do they do again here? And we prayed. We prayed and we worked and we prayed and we worked. We prayed to God and, and we set a guard. We prayed and we worked. We prayed and we set a guard. You know, there was once this TV commercial a few years ago, and there's this little girl, and she's standing in the midst of, I think it's the Serengeti, and, this, and she's standing there all alone, and you see nothing all around them. Way off in the distance, you see this, this cloud building off in the distance, and you see this rhinoceros is the speck in the, in the dust, and he's billowing up this cloud. He's angry, and he's full of might and fury and power, and he's charging from half a mile away, and then you see the rhinoceros getting closer and closer, and she's just standing there, not flinching, not scared, not worried, not intimidated, and the rhinoceros is charging, and you're wondering in your mind, what's going to happen in this commercial, and, and the rhinoceros in this huge cloud of dust, it comes up to this little girl, and then it stops right in front of her. And not for a moment was she fearful. And this rhinoceros stops and is huffing and is panting. And there's, there's a big cloud of dust all around. And, and she leans down and she kisses it on the horn. I have no idea what that commercial was for. <laughs> I have no clue what that commercial was for. But there was a tagline in the commercial that was really good. It said, trust is not being afraid even when you're vulnerable. Now, I'm sure they made some wild connection to, I don't know, life insurance or something like that. But, but I thought that, that's a great image. It seems the enemy is huge and he's raging and he's full of fury and he kicks up a cloud of dust. And yet we can trust that God will stop the enemy. And I love trust is not being afraid even when you are vulnerable. And that's what we see in this passage. God's people were few. They were not enough, by the way. The number of people that's detailed coming back, it was probably less than 42,000 total men, women, children, the entire amount of people who went back with Ezra and Nehemiah. Hey, maybe they're 50,000 total. All the area of Judah all around from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, that whole area, they're spread out. And that's not how many people are working. There's, there's probably a few thousand working here. But all of those enemies numbered thousands and thousands more, I'm sure. They were raging. And yet, we see, oddly, it just doesn't come to fruition. They never actually attack. And and behind that, you're meant to think, whoa, that's unusual. Whoa, that's strange. Wait a minute, the Astrodites and the Ammonites and the Arabs and the Sumerians and the other people, and they're all gathering and conspiring, and yet they just don't attack? What happens? We'll we'll see that in a minute. Well, what other kind of trials or opposition that people face in these verses? You can see them all throughout these verses. They're facing all kinds of threats and the cumulative effect, the cumulative effect of threats and ridicule and mockery and physical opposition of those things and then of internal discord is they become discouraged. They're faced discouragement. You ever face discouragement? 
Man, I can't think of a week that goes by where when I'm, you know, I'm thinking, whoa, God's at work and he's so mighty at work and I can see that things are happening in my life and I'm able to say no to sin. And just in those moments, the devil comes in and says, nah, you're not thinking clearly. Nah, that's not God. You're just making that stuff up. And there can become so much discouragement from without and discouragement from within. What do God's people do? Well, we see the second big idea here, is, and, and really I'm gonna spend a lot of time on this one, is that when faced with discouragement, what do God's people do? When faced with discouragement, the discouragement of opposition without and opposition within, both, right? Because it, it's not that they just became discouraged all of a sudden. This discouragement was a wearing down of opposition around them, by the way. And you can be discouraged as a Christian when the world around you tells you you're feeble, you're dumb, you're weak, you're not able, this work is too much, you can't do it, we're gonna kill you, we're gonna put you in jail and then the people around you say that, yeah, we just can't do this work, it's too much. And that's what we see in this passage. They're discouraged, they're facing discouragement. But when faced with discouragement, God's people remember the Lord and what we're fighting for. That's, that's how we see God's people respond to discouragement. The, the ultimate response there is remembering the Lord and remembering what they're fighting for taking away the punchline, really, and, and look down at verse 14. What do God's people do when they're faced with discouragement? He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. They're not great and awesome. The world around you is not great and awesome. Remember the Lord, he says. What do we do when we're faced with discouragement? Remember the Lord. And then the second thing he does, he says, hey, and by the way, don't forget what you're fighting for matters. What you're fighting for, it matters. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Remember the Lord, he's great and awesome and remember what you're fighting for. That you are fighting for the people of God. You are fighting for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are fighting for what is vitally important. You are fighting for life, eternal life. A new tactic was employed in discouragement. They got halfway through and they became discouraged. You ever get halfway through, you begin a good work, and you think, this is going really well. But then you get midway through and you think, well, Dag, this is hard. And, it, and it's, it's lasted a long time. And hold, you mean this perseverance thing means I gotta actually persevere? You know, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, it's a great doctrine that we will persevere to the end. But you know what it also means? We must persevere to the end. I don't know about you, but I don't like long-suffering. I don't, I don't like the idea of perseverance over a lifetime. And it can be intimidating. And yet, we must persevere. They notice all the rubble. Now, the rubble wasn't new, by the way. You right? The rubble wasn't new. When they first got to the city, that's all the city was, was rubble. There was no walls. The walls had all become rubble. They're at least halfway through. The walls are halfway up, right? So they should be really encouraged because work is progressing. They should look back and see, hey, we got halfway through this wall already. This is pretty great. But they looked and they saw the rubble. They lost perspective. They saw that, oh, there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, in God's kingdom, there's a lot of work to be done. And just when you think, hey, this is going great. We're almost done. Then you realize, oh, no, there's so much rubble left still. You ever feel that way in your own life? You, you feel like, oh my gosh, I've stalled out. I thought I was doing really well in this whole sanctification thing, and I was growing, and I'm growing strong, and I'm built up in my faith, but then I look around, and I'm like, oh, oh, there's so much rubble on my life still. It can be discouraging, or you can look and see in the church, there's so much rubble still. I thought that we were excited, we're building this kingdom, we're planting a church, and we're going forward, and things are happening, and this is great, and then you look around, and you see all the rubble still. Especially if you realize that, you know, people grow up, people move away, you know, our children's ministry, um, it, it's doing really well right now, but you know what, five years from now, I bet we're going to look and see, oh, hang on, we better pay attention to this again. You know, there's always seasons in life of change. And a few years ago, we had, we had tons of singles, and it was wonderful. We had a great rocking singles ministry, like 50 singles in the church. It was great. And you know what the fruit of that is? Hey, this is awesome. All these singles are growing up and maturing, and they're getting married, and they're moving away. And hang on, where did the singles go? And you're like, well, 
It's rubble. And that's actually okay. There's work to be do, done in the kingdom. Doesn't mean something's wrong. There's continually work to be done. How about in your marriage? You think, hey, our marriage is growing strong. And then we have kids. And then we both realize how selfish we are. And then all we can do is barely sleep. And I mean barely sleep if you've got kids that are, yeah, at all. You know, because you, you think, oh, when they get older, it's going to be so much better. Well, wait till they start having problems that keep you up at night. You know, I, I, I don't know. What, what do I trade? Would I rather, well, I kind of have both right now. Would I rather a kid who wakes up in the middle of the night? Or would I rather a kid who's wondering about their future and wrestling with real serious issues in their life? Which would I rather? Oh, I don't know. They both keep you up at night. What do you do when there's rubble? Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. Remember what we're fighting for. What we once had is not done yet. There might be an area of successful ministry in your life or in the church, but then you look around and say, oh, wait a minute, there's still work to be done. Don't be discouraged. It's kingdom work. You're always going to be building. There's threats, there's mockery, there's rubble. You know, there's a, Spurgeon, he, he had a way with words, and he said, you know, the snail reached the ark by patient perseverance. Well, I think I should have said the, right, the verse, but with patient perseverance, the snail reaches the ark. It was a long trip. <laughs> we can feel like that sometimes. We will reach his ark. The work wasn't idealistic. It was realistically challenging. Their, their burdens were actually physically heavy. It was hard, backbreaking labor. What they needed to know is that God was for them. God's kingdom work is hard and the temptation to discouragement, it is very real. And I think this is perhaps, and I'm gonna spend, this is why we're spending more time on this point, is there's perhaps more opposition that comes in a Christian's life from discouragement than from anything else. Now discouragement might come from without, but the discouragement comes from within and it's both and it's a mix of things. And so the, the walk of the Christian life is one where you are constantly battling, constantly battling opposition, constantly battling discouragement. Constantly battling your own head that says you can't do it. This is too much. These burdens are too strong. I can't do it. I can't keep this up. There's too much rubble. I've, I've been working for a long time. And then people around you will say, hey, by the way, you, get, you need to stop. You just need to take a rest and just, you shouldn't be so involved in church. You know, that's, that's sucking up a lot of your time. The Jews around them were saying that. Hey, come back, you know, come back. You know, stop working on the wall. They came to him 10 times. And I kind of get that. They came to us 10 times. Oh my goodness. Won't they stop? They keep coming and saying, this kingdom work is not so important. You need to give it a rest. You ever have friends and family say that? Hey, you know, give it a rest. Have some perspective. This kingdom work is not that important. You know, I was thinking... Nehemiah, he expresses real struggles and emotions. It was written for our encouragement to show us that we're not alone. God's people then in that day suffered, and we're gonna suffer, but through perseverance and endurance and through difficulties, God built up his people. That's what God was doing in his people. He was actually building them up. He wasn't just building the place. He was making the people stronger. And we're, we're doing kingdom work, and we're thinking, God, why is this hard? Why, because God's working, he's building you up. You know, God's people suffered and through perseverance and endurance and through difficulties, we can relate, can't we? We can relate, but we need, we need more than just relating. We need more than just somebody who says, you know what, I'm so sorry you're going through that. We need somebody who can help us endure, right? You know, and so often I've heard in counseling situations, oh, you don't really understand because you haven't gone through X, Y, Z temptation, you haven't, you haven't experienced the allure of heroin or whatever. Or you haven't experienced this. You haven't experienced that. Or you haven't done this sin or you haven't done that. And so how in the world can you help me? Well, I say, why? Because I have a Savior who's actually endured every kind of temptation. And by the way, do you really want help from a person 
who wasn't strong enough to resist? Is that the kind of help we need the most? I mean, ultimately, none of us can resist, but, but Christ, the ultimate helper, he resisted to the end faithful. Well, it takes more effort. Well, it takes more effort. Giving in to sin and then overcoming or never giving in and overcoming. You know, you think, well, I don't know if Jesus can really relate to me. No, it says he actually was tempted in every way as we are. Why is that encouraging for us to endure and persevere? Why is that encouragement to us? Because Jesus is strong enough to he knows how to resist all the way to the end. I want a champion. I don't want somebody who's halfway good at something. I want somebody who's able to say, you know what? I actually experienced all the real temptation that you have, but I have endured and fought, and I've got some tools, and I know how to remain faithful all the way to the end. That's what Jesus comes to us and tells us. He will keep us faithful to the end. He knows. He empathizes with our weakness. He bore the burdens that we bear. He experienced the temptations that we're tempted with in every way as we are, and yet without sin. That's why that verse is encouraging. Because he actually knows how to overcome temptation and how to never give in and up. We, we need a savior who knows how to keep himself from alcohol addiction and drug addiction and sexual addiction and entertainment addiction and man-pleasing and fear and worry and anxiety. And thanks be to God, we have a savior who's resisted in every way. And he's able so to help us resist and to persevere and endure and teach us to how to say no to sin What we need is somebody who understands deeply the anatomy of sin and understands why we do it and what motivates us and and how to be aware of those sinful tendencies and motivations and temptations and then how to overcome that. And in that, we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who knows all of our weaknesses. He knows our desires. You know, was Jesus tempted to give up? Absolutely. Was he tempted to give up as a child? I, I can guarantee it. Was he tempted to give up when his disciples were morons? I can guarantee it. When no one worshipped him, when the creator of the universe came down and no one acknowledged who he was, do you struggle with people not recognizing you for your good contributions to the kingdom? (laughs) Let me tell you, I believe Jesus might have done that. Do you you struggle with other people taking credit for your work? I I think Jesus experienced that. Do you struggle with with people threatening and ridiculing and mocking and jeering and taunting? Do you struggle with those things? Jesus in every way struggled with those things and yet did not give in. We need a strong Savior. And we have a strong Savior who knows how to resist. The discouragement was understandable, right? It's understandable when we get discouraged. And, and the people here are not being corrected for being discouraged, but they are being redirected. They're, they're not being corrected in the sense of saying, how in the world could you be discouraged? God is gentle with us. He's merciful to us. He doesn't, he doesn't say, why are you discouraged? That way, but he does say, why are you downcast? I am for you. Remember that I am great and awesome. In your discouragement, have you forgotten the promise? So the New Testament tells us, have you forgotten the promise? God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability with every temptation. He'll provide a way to escape so that you can bear up under it. The second half we don't like so much. Therefore, flee idolatry. Discouragement was understandable. They were tired from the hard work. Kingdom work is hard and exhausting. It can mean heavy lifting. It does. It means heavy lifting, by the way. And sometimes it's long and heavy lifting. Sometimes your strength will give out. There's lots of rubble. The enthusiasm you had to begin with wears off over time as the work continues. And isn't that true for us? You know, you think, I just need to take a break. I just need to stop working. There's nothing wrong with with regular periods of rest and and refreshment. That's why God instituted the Sabbath. That whole principle is that we need a period of rest, but it's not this huge, long portion. Every week, we need a day that we rest in him 
And we focus on who God is and worshiping him. And we're reminded that God is great and awesome. That's what refreshes us. You don't need to take off, stop doing kingdom work, stop doing church work indefinitely because you're burnt out. You're burnt out because you have lost sight of God who is great and awesome. And I don't say that meanly. All of us face burnout. All of us do. All of us get discouraged. We need to build into our life regular habits and patterns of refreshment. But what we need to see is, look down at your Bibles here in verse 14. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. And then we need to remember too that the, the fight that we're in, it's, it's of eternal significance. Don't give up. It's of eternal significance. Parent, if you are laboring in the trenches of kingdom work with your children, don't give up. It's their very eternal lives that are at stake. If you're laboring with somebody who's struggling with persistent sin in the church, don't give up. If you're laboring with people who are weak, don't give up. And you know what? It's daunting when somebody, hey, we can all rally around it, and there's something good here, and we're going to see that in a minute. We, we all rally around the cause, and that's good when somebody has a problem. But when that problem goes on for a long time... I don't know about you, but I want to give up. <laughs> I'm just done. Or that person's weakness is beginning to annoy me. If you're honest, it sounds awful to say, by the way. Remember God who was awesome and great. Remember this work you were doing. It's eternally significant. You're fighting for the very lives of the people around you. You know, even the prophet Elijah, I, I, I love the stories of people in the Old Testament who are discouraged because it encourages us to not give up. Elijah, he's in the Old, he's in the Old Testament, he's this great prophet, and, and he, he, he prays that God would demonstrate himself, and there's these 450 prophets of Baal, and so they, they create this altar, and Elijah creates an altar, and he says, you know, come and put a trench around this altar, and then he, he dumps a bunch of water on his, his altar, and he, he dumps so much water, there's pails and pails and pails of water, and then he prays. He says, you know what, why don't you, why don't you do your little dance to your God, see what happens. And they cut themselves, they cry out, nothing happens. Elijah prays, the fire of God rains down. It burns up both altars in the stones, and the water. God works mightily. And then, something we're, we're not familiar with, is, but this is God's justice, a picture of God's justice and God's judgment is wrath. God empowers Elijah to, to, to physically slay all the prophets of Baal. And you think, boy, he's, he should be on a spiritual high right now, right? He saw God's fire rain down, and he was empowered by God to carry out God's justice. And so he should be on a spiritual high, and he should feel like, I am invincible, right? But you know, in the, in the moment of our greatest successes, spiritually, often what comes is dis- discouragement immediately. Things are going really great, and then... The devil comes in, discouragement comes in. And so what happens to Elijah. And he, he hears that this one person, the queen, who, who cares if it's a queen? Didn't he just see fire rain down? He forgot God's great and awesome and there's this Jezebel, she wants to kill him and so he runs off in the desert by himself. And he says, God only, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else. I can't do it and he's discouraged and he's weak. You know, what does God do? God reminds him who he is. God feeds him. God sends the birds of the air to feed him. He sends an angel to encourage him. He, he wakes him up, gives him some food, goes back to sleep again, wakes him up again. And then he was, he was prepared once he re, was reminded of who God is and that God's at work to do, go and do the work again. You know, Nehemiah and the people are called to carry heavy burdens and they needed to, to do what they needed to persevere. God causes the hard work and we need to do the hard work of persevering. Look down at verse 15 for a moment. Something very interesting here. He says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Wait a minute, it doesn't tell us how God frustrated their plan. But it was clear. God frustrated their plan and it was clear to the enemy but did that mean that they could back down and stop? He says, when, they, when our enemies heard it was known to us and to God that had frustrated their plan, he says, we returned to the wall each to his work. So even though the enemy was no longer, their, their plans had been frustrated, it doesn't say the enemies necessarily went away, actually. If you look down your Bible, it doesn't say anything about that. It says, the enemies found out that their plans were frustrated. It doesn't say they stopped or went away. So what did they do? 
they realize that, you know what? Ooh, wait a minute, we really have an enemy here. We, we have to be vigilant. And, and while doing kingdom work, here's the, here's the third big idea here, is that when doing kingdom work, we must always be vigilant. That's what we see in verses 15 to 23, uh, a vigilant. They, they realize, wait a minute, we have a real enemy. We have opposition from without. We have opposition within. We better be vigilant. Christian, sometimes God brings opposition to us to wake us up to the fact that we have an enemy. We need to be vigilant because you know what? When things are easy, you let down your guard, Right? When things are easy, you're more tempted to let down your guard. When there's an attack, you you put your guard up and you realize, oh, hang on, I better be strong. Let me tell you, the whole Christian life is one of attack. We we go, we're not on the playground as believers, we're on the battleground constantly, constantly at battle. There's this motto that used to be an organization called the, the, it was the Army Security Service and they had a motto, it it was, Always be vigilant, ever vigilant. I think that's actually the military police motto now is ever vigilant. The Air National Guard says another way, don't let your guard down. Why is that? Because when we fail to be vigilant, the enemy can sneak in. When we fail to be vigilant, we're prone to attack. When we fail to be vigilant, we're going to be prone to attack from without, attack from within. You're going to be prone to discouragement. I need to be vigilant against that. We're going to be prone to threats, to jeering, to mocking, to belittling, all, all the threats of the enemy. We're, we're prone, and so because we're prone to that, even though God frustrates the plans of the enemy, we can be confident in that. We can't stop being vigilant. Church, don't, don't let your guard down. Always be vigilant. The enemy seeks to divide and intimidate us in the church. We must always be vigilant. How how do we know that? Well, he seeks to divide us with jealousy, with envy, with bitterness, with petty offenses and gossip and slander and resentment and and different perspectives and opinions on secondary and third level matters and and, and to get us to focus in and and read into how somebody else says things and our perception of what they meant so much so that, you know, maybe we have a perceived offense when somebody walks by us and they don't say hello to us, but, but really that person might be totally distracted, not even thinking of you, not even seeing you. They're kind of out in the zone and yet you take up this offense. We need to be ever vigilant because the enemy is, attacks us in different ways and tries to stir up discouragement within and create accusations and bring threats from all around. We have to learn to recognize, to uncover, to expose the plots of the devil. Be always vigilant. When something threatens to come against us and tear down our relationships, we need to understand it might be a ploy of the enemy. Be ever vigilant. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Strategically set a guard on your hearts, on your minds, on your mouths. They're setting a guard physically. We set a guard. Remind ourselves of what's important, what's true, what's right, what's good. We set a guard by reminding ourselves that we're all the bride of Christ. The person you might be struggling with here is God's son or daughter, so be careful of how you treat them. Set a guard, remind yourself what God's done in your own life and what God's done in their life as well. Set a guard. Be vigilant. Towards the end of his life, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, he says, in, in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says something here. He says, remember. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. What was he telling Timothy? Hey, set a guard on your mind. Remember Jesus rose from the dead. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of David. He's the offspring of David, as preached in my good news. Remember the good news. Set a guard. And he uses that same kind of language. He's about to die. He knows he's facing his martyrdom. And he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. And then what does he say before he dies? I fought the fight. I've won the race. And now is laid up a crown in heaven. Remember Jesus so we don't lose heart. And then he tells us, look back, look down in verse 13. It says, the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the open places, I station the people by their clans, their swords, their spears, their bows, 
There's this setting of a guard, this, this picture, this image of filling gaps, protecting God's wall, protecting the kingdom. It continues all the way through verse 18. Instead of leaving this weak area of the wall exposed, drawing attention to it, they cover the lowest points. Church, if there is a weakness, fill the gap. If there's a weakness, cover that weakness. I don't mean pretend it's not there, but cover up in a sense of, hey, I'm going to protect this person who is weak. I'm going to cover that weakness. I'm going to cover the area. I'm going to take care of the area that's weak. I'm going to fill the gap. I'm going to guard against those things. I'm going to make sure the enemy doesn't come in where we're weak. I am going to step in the space behind the wall in those open places we have. Fill in the holes in unity and strengthen the whole wall of the church. That's what we see here happening. We see in verses 19 and 20, the people also had to rally around each other when they got in trouble. They, they needed to listen to the trumpet to indicate that somebody else was in danger. They were spread thin. The work is hard. We are spread out. In this area, we're spread out all over this area. What do we do? We rally around each other, be willing to carry each other's burdens. When you, when you hear the trumpet call, fight with the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth in our hand at all times. Loft the shield of faith to quench the darts of the evil one. And you're going to need to fight or be ready to fight while you build. This is a vivid imagery. They got one hand on a sword and another hand on a trowel. That's what he's saying. Now what does it look like for us? We get about kingdom work and we're always ready with God's word to fight. Fight. Be on guard against the wiles of the enemy, of the wiles of the devil Don't think because you're doing good work that everything's going to be smooth sailing. You need a sword. We have to fight off the enemy of the devil in our own flesh and at the same time build each other up in the love of God. And sometimes we're going to need to sacrifice as well. We see in 21, they they labored, they worked hard. what What does it say in verse 21? So we labored at the work And half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. This is a persistent, tiring, enduring vigilance. It means sacrifice. Some had to come and sleep in the city to protect it at night. They got up, they worked in the day. It's it's like the construction worker who's also the night security guard for his own construction site. You know, sometimes kingdom works exhausting. We don't seem to get any sleep. Everybody's sacrificing, extending themselves for the sake of the kingdom. I, I love, there's, we have so many people in the church who sacrifice. I was telling the guys in the men's meeting yesterday that, I can't remember which, I got my stats backwards, but I, I looked this past week, and of all of the members in the church, if it was 95 or 93% were involved in serving in an official area in the church in a formal way, and then I thought about all the people who can't engage in a formal way because of, of various challenges or not only work schedules, but physical maladies. And those people are serving in informal ways. That's so encouraging. Average church, 20%. The best average you see is like 43% of people serving. So encouraged that God is at work. And there's so many examples of God being at work in our church. And, and I love, he talks about the, the leaders. They got behind the people and they supported them in the wall. And I thought about the deacons we have in our church, the small group leaders, the ministry team leaders. Those are our, our diaconate, in case you ever wondered. that Those are our deacons, our, our small group leaders, our ministry team leaders, the people who serve in those ways. And they're filling in the gaps. There's so many people get up early to meet with folks at six in the morning before work happens because they are caring and filling in the gaps and people are sacrificing and extending themselves. People hosting care group, meeting with folks for counsel, practicing hospitality, uh, serving tirely because kingdom work is worth it. There's countless people work behind the scenes in children's ministry and youth and in singles and all kinds of areas serving day and night for the sake of gospel. There are people sharing the gospel in the church going downtown to Greenville where it's not popular and people saying that method doesn't work anymore. Well, you know what? It's not the only method, but it's one of many and it's one we shouldn't stop either. Share the gospel, reaching out, people practicing mercy ministry, people caring for women and helping to rescue unborn babies. They didn't stop to work. And I love this picture in Nehemiah 4.23. It says, though neither I nor my brothers nor my servants, the men of the guard, are following, none of us took off our clothes and everybody kept his weapon in his right hand. 
And if you have another translation, maybe the New American Standard Bible or the NIV, or if you look down, there's a footnote in the ESV, if you have an ESV of footnotes, and it, and it says that even when they went for water, then it doesn't necessarily just mean drinking. They went to bathe, they took a sword with them. They went to get water, they, they took a sword with them. There's just ever vigilance, always ready to fight, to bear their burdens, to carry the cross, as Jesus would say. Because we wrestle against principalities and powers, we have to fight. We always bear the burden of the cross of Christ. Reminds me of Ephesians 6, it tells us to put on the full armor of God. I don't have time to go into that, but I'd encourage you to think through each portion of the armor on a consistent basis. And then throughout it, we see one last point, which we'll finish just in the next few minutes here. Throughout it all, God is our mighty fortress. There is a stream running throughout this passage that is really all about God. It's all about God. God is ultimately their protection. We, didn't, we don't know why God frustrated, how God frustrated the plans, but God did, and God was at work, and they're appealing to God, and, and God throughout it all, throughout the entire passage, threaded throughout, it doesn't fit with one neat little point, but all throughout the passage is God is their mighty fortress. But you know what one of the most effective tactics of warfare is? One of the most effective tactics of warfare is to make the enemy think they're beaten before you even fight. Propaganda is very powerful. It, to, if you can make them think they're beaten, then they're going to lack the willpower to fight. If you, can, if you can exercise psychological warfare against your enemies before you even fight them, they're going to potentially run away from you or drop their weapons or they are going to give up or they're going to be intimidated or say, hey, we can't even fight to begin with. Military doctrine says that you can defeat a greater enemy if you defeat him in his mind to begin with. That was why for a little while they had this tactic called shock and awe. They would, they would create these huge explosions and lights and sounds and noises to intimidate. Why? So they didn't have to fight as much. If your enemy can control your emotions and reasoning, they're going to emerge victorious over even superior forces. Armies all around the world throughout the ages have used psychological warfare because it's effective. Even back to the Aztecs, they had these, these whistles that they created and according to archaeologists, it says the Aztec death whistles sound like the scream of a thousand corpses. Now, I've never heard a thousand corpses screaming, so I'm not sure. But that's pretty vivid imagery, at least, right? This Aztec death whistle. And they unearthed a couple of these skull-shaped instruments. They look like skulls. And it says, initially, they thought they might be toys or they might be used in rituals in war. But it's, it was designed clearly to sound like a human howling in pain. And these death whistles, they, they were apparently reserved for rare occasions, and, and, and some believe that their main use was psychological warfare. At the beginning of a battle, the whistles would be used, and their unnerving sound would break the resolve of the enemy. The enemy will seek to break your resolve, to tell you, you can't do it, the work is too much, you're feeble, you're weak, we're going to kill you. Um, you, you, you're not able, hey, you're never going to clean up this rubble, it's never going to be done, you should just give up now! The death whistle rages, but it's just a whistle, even if it kills us. <laughs> that was appropriate. <laughs> For those listening, there was a death whistle that just happened from, <laughs> I hope it wasn't a death whistle, just one of the kids struggling. Perfect timing. <laughs> As a parent, by the way, Oh man, I feel for that. My kids so often have been the kids who make those noises and you just cringe and then you realize that, hey, every parent goes through that and that's okay. We're not a church that stands on ceremony. We're a church that struggles and we struggle together and we all have struggles and we all have kids or at least a lot, not all of us, but we, a lot of us have kids and you know what? We can support each other, not, not, not correct each other in those things. This whole narrative, it's interspersed with affirmations of confidence in God and faith in him. I want you to look down at 4.4. They, they know that God hears them. He's attentive. He cares about justice. And, and it motivates their prayers and, and faith. And they, they ultimately know God will take vengeance. And now looking at verse 9, it says they know God's able to protect them and to keep them safe. And it sustains their prayers. And verse 14, they say God is great and awesome. He's holy. He's powerful. He fills us with all. And for his enemies, that is a terrible all. 
Verse 15, we see God is sovereign. He's, he has frustrated the plans of the enemy. We don't know how, but God's sovereignly at work. He frustrated the plans of the enemies. And then we see they, their confession in verse 20. He's unfailing. Our God will fight for us. This is all about God all throughout. God's their mighty fortress. God is their mighty warrior. Jesus is the ultimate champion who has fought sin. He's the mighty warrior who's defeated every enemy. We can have confidence. God will fight for us. He has fought for us and he will continue to fight because he's already won the victory. I love in 1 John 4, 4, I don't think I have this on the overhead for you, but it says, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God is our mighty fortress. We can claim something no other unbeliever, nobody else from any religion or anti-religion can claim. God is for us. I love the words of Martin Luther who I started with. He, he penned that letter to his friend Jerome. He also penned so many psalms and hymns praising God. And, and I love the last one I'm gonna leave you with is a mighty fortress and then we'll close. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal, mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Sabaoth is a word for Sabbath rest, by the way. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we will not tremble for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our mighty fortress. Thank you, Jesus, that you have prevailed, that you have wielded the sword and cut the head off the enemy, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord, that you have already put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and so now we can, with confidence, face all opposition. We can persevere. We can go to you in prayer knowing that you understand, and Lord, we can have confidence knowing you will keep us to the end even if we die. Lord, would you encourage us in this kingdom work? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be displayed.